Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. If you have a Bible with you, Exodus chapter 10. If you do not have a Bible, if you need a copy of God's Word, there are some on the table back there, please take one. It would be our pleasure to give you a copy of God's Word. Exodus chapter 10. Coming into the 8th plague of God on Egypt. The 8th plague. And another larger passage, like I said, we'll see from here on, kind of through the rest of Exodus, but we're going to be coming into some sweeping passages of Scripture. Uh, Today is an example of that. Next week is not as large of a passage, but some larger sweeping passages through the pages of Scripture. Israel is awaiting deliverance. Moses is heralding God's demand that Pharaoh let them go. And Pharaoh is refusing to obey God, refusing to let Israel leave as God has commanded him to. He's hard-hearted in his disobedience and refusing to let them go. Let's get into scripture this morning. Exodus chapter 10, would you follow along? We're going to read verses 1 through 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, Tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the field, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all day, all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up all over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen, as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today, Father and I, recognizing my inability to teach or proclaim anything from your word without the power of your Holy Spirit. So I pray, Father, would you please speak to me and through me the truth that you would have this gathered people learn from your word today. Father, I pray that for every heart in the room that your spirit would minister. And I don't ask you to do this because I know that you will. But Father, I pray, please, speak to those that have gathered. I pray that as your word is taught, as we examine your truth from the pages of Exodus, I pray, God, that the sinner would be humbled to repentance and salvation. I pray, Father, that holiness would be promoted among your people, that we would be holy as you are holy. And I pray, Father, that in our examining of Scripture, Christ, the Savior, would be exalted. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. I entitled the sermon today right out of verse number 7, Egypt is Ruined. I pray that from today's text we will see the connection between what God does and what God's people are supposed to talk about. There's a straight line between the work of God and the word of the Christian. And I pray that today we will begin seeing that in a greater way, that we may talk about the Lord in a greater way as driven by his word in our lives. Let's examine some things. First off, we notice this plague comes, as we've been examining through scripture, this plague comes in the order of the second and the fifth. It is the second plague of the third set of three plagues. Number eight comes in the same pattern. Go to Pharaoh, say to him the same command, let my people go if you refuse, coming in the same pattern, the same opportunity of mercy. Note it says, go into Pharaoh, God says, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. God told Moses back in Exodus chapter 4 verse 21 that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. We've kind of been looking at the tension of God telling Moses what to do, but also telling Moses what you're going to do is going to be very difficult because I'm not allowing Pharaoh to do what you're telling him to do. I've hardened his heart to listening to you. We have examined throughout our journey through Exodus that this is not God exerting authority over the will of Pharaoh, but it is God exerting his will alongside of Pharaoh's already hardened heart. Pharaoh has a hard heart before God, and God is exercising his will, receiving glory for himself, making himself known by using Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. God told Moses he would do this, and here we see it happening. Paul, in Romans 9, 18 through 21, you don't have to go there, but you could write down Romans 9, 18 through 21, addressing this very situation 
It's not that Paul is speaking about something that is similar and we can learn about this situation. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, literally is talking about Pharaoh and God hardening his heart in Romans chapter 9. In Romans 9, 18 through 21, Paul addresses the very situation, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And Paul explains brilliantly, of course, because he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? You hear me say it often. I hope I say it every single week because we should never forget that God's word comes from God. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit means that God inspired men to wrote as they heard from God. And Paul says in Romans 9.18 that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he will harden whom he will harden. As he has here hardened Pharaoh's heart, he is hardening him, though as we'll see there are opportunities for mercy. He is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so the, 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 the appropriate response on our part as human flesh is to say, well, why does God have mercy on some and harden others? Why not do it some other way? We talked about this last week. What other way? Your way? Because if God were to do things your way, we, well, we all know how that would turn out. I got an eye roll from somebody in the front row just now. They're like, if God did things our way, life would be really bad. Go ahead and have it your way. Pharaoh's having it his way right now. I hope you're paying attention to that. I hope you're paying attention to the fact that Pharaoh is having his way right now. And it's not going good for him, for his servants, for his people, or the land. So if any of you are considering God doing things your way, consider Pharaoh as he's getting his way, hardening his heart and now God hardening his heart. Why would God have mercy on some and harden others and I can't explain to you the sovereignty of God and how he operates that way? I can't tell you why he does that. I can only tell you because the scripture tells us that he does it. But I cannot tell you why and I cannot tell you how. There's an element of mystery that is involved for us. However, I can explain there are things that are revealed to us in Scripture. The Bible tells us the hardening and the mercy showing of God toward humanity. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1.11 that God does all things according to the counsel of his own will. God does as he wills among man. And he works with man's will. He doesn't exercise over it. God is working alongside of. And I want to be careful there to not make it sound like God is a partner with us. God is accomplishing his purpose. And he's using our will to accomplish his purpose. Right now, Pharaoh is a hard heart, and God is using Pharaoh's hard heart to exalt himself over Pharaoh and the Egyptians. I can't explain it but I can show you at least two reasons from this text today, one reason here and one in Romans, why God does it that way. can't tell you how. I can't tell you why, but I can show, I can, I can't tell you how, but I can show you why God is doing that. Would you look at what it says in verse 2? Exodus chapter 10, verse 2. I've hardened his heart that you may Look what he says. I'm sorry, verse 1. Go into Pharaoh, I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Look what he says. That I may show these signs of mine. Verse 2. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. Look at this. 
that you may know that I am the Lord. So look, in this very brief two verses, look at the reasons that jump out, and I'm only looking at one of them this morning. That I may show these signs. God is showing himself in the way that he operates. That I may show these signs. That you may tell, the start of verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson. You may know that I am the Lord. Three things right there. In Romans chapter 9, verse 23, God says, using Paul, Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God says, I harden whom I will and have mercy on whom I will in order to show the riches of my glory to vessels prepared for mercy. God is having mercy and God is hardening that he may be known and that we may see his goodness to us. God is making himself known. Lastly, look at how what happens here, and this is what I want to point out this morning. Remember the the connection. I want us to see and begin wrestling down the connection of what God does and what we are to be talking about. Look what he says. It's all of verse 2. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Write this down. I wrote it down and I'm going to try and memorize this statement. It's, it's good and biblical, but they're just my words, so they're not from Scripture. But this point, in all that happens in this created world, God is making himself known and revealing and receiving his glory. If this is not your worldview, it needs to be as a follower of Jesus Christ. I'll give it to you again. In all that happens in this created world, God is making himself known and revealing and receiving his glory. We don't like this because we like life to be about us. We like to think that I'm here because God wanted to give me something good that I could enjoy while I'm here, right? But have you ever thought about, have you ever come to grips with the thought Why am I here? Why are you here? What is our purpose, right? The world out there is asking this question all day long, every day, in every way, in every place that they can, to anyone they can ask. You know what answer they're getting? Nobody has an answer out there. And even in the church, as I say it, and heads start nodding, we ask What is the purpose? If we don't begin examining the fact that everything that happens is for God's glory, the revealing of himself, the receiving of glory unto himself, Christian, that's our purpose. Like I can wander through life and wonder what it's all about and what I'm doing and what's the point of it. When I zero in on the fact, biblical truth, that my existence is for the glory of God, All of a sudden, I have something much different to live for. And I have an answer for all those who are not living for the glory of God. That doesn't mean we do it perfectly, does it? No, no, we sure don't live for the glory of God perfectly. But we strive for the glory of God. And all that you do, whether you eat or drink, and all that you say, and all that you do, do it all for the glory of God. It is all to glorify God. And all that happens in this created world, God is making himself known and revealing and receiving his glory. But then look at the tension that comes in here, right? God says, I've hardened his heart to Moses. 
And then Moses goes in, and look what Moses says to him. Thus says the Lord God, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? And how many of us read it? I know it was just a cursory read for you. Maybe you read ahead this week, and you're like, oh, I think we'll be in Exodus 10, so I'm going to read this. And maybe you looked at that, and maybe you thought about the tension between I have hardened his heart, meaning he's not going to listen to you, Moses. Go in and say to him, he's not going to listen. And then Moses saying, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? Well, the natural question actually is answered again in Romans. Pastor, God hardened his heart. And then Moses said, how long will you not be humble? Remember the hardening of God, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart by God is working in cohesion with God's will. The apostle Paul in Romans 9 verse 19 says this, you will say to me, why does God find fault? God here has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And now Pharaoh's in trouble because God hardened his heart. And do you understand the argument that's being worked out by the Apostle Paul in Romans? Why does God find fault then? If God has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills, how can God tell anyone that they're sinners? How can God say, you're disobedient to me if God hardens their heart to obeying him? Right? How often do we think about this tension? I hope that you think about it all the time. And if not, I promise you, now that I've talked about it, you're going to wrestle with this thought for a long time. How can God tell us to obey if he doesn't soften our heart that we may obey? God, through the Apostle Paul, you will say to me, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? Answer, no one. You cannot resist the will of God. How can we be in trouble for sin if God hardens our hearts to what is right? We ask this because we have lost a necessary biblical view in this world. Flat out lost it. What is that? That humanity in their natural position before God stands condemned. There is None good. No. Not one. And why do we wrestle now with thinking about, wait a second, how can God call for our obedience if we're hardened? Pharaoh's hardened by God. He can't obey. And Moses goes, how long are you going to be before you humble yourself before God? What is Pharaoh's natural position right now? He is condemned before God. Hardened. Our hearts are hardened. How many of you walked in here this morning thinking, well, you didn't think about it until I'm going to say this right now, but you didn't walk in here this morning thinking, I have a hard heart. How many of you came in here this morning not thinking, I have a hard heart? You did not think that when you walked through the doors. Be honest with yourself and everyone around you. You walked in the doors and you did not think, I have a hard heart. Do you know why you didn't think that? Because it may be that God is revealing his mercy to you and he is softening your heart or has softened your heart. Do you know what the natural state of every human's heart is from birth until softened by God's mercy? You know what everyone's natural state of the heart is? Hardened, calloused as stone. Every single one of us. We, we say these things, but then we lose sight of them so rapidly because we want to think that there's something good about us. Our hearts are hardened. Hardened. Humanity is condemned before God. Pharaoh is standing condemned before God. When God says, I've hardened his heart, 
He's not taking him from wanting to obey God to not able to obey God. He's simply pressed down harder on Pharaoh's desire to not obey God. Pharaoh already doesn't want to obey God. I do not know him. I will not listen. I will not obey him. And God is now saying, I know. And he's pushing down harder on Pharaoh's disobedient, resistant will to obey God. Jesus, in John chapter 3, if you are a person who likes to study the deep things of God, if you like to study deep doctrine, if you like to look for truth, I want to encourage you that there is no greater place to read about salvation and to understand it better than in John chapter 3. Jesus is the greatest and most perfect and all-wise theologian that there ever has been. And we read the recorded words of Scripture, and we read about Jesus teaching us about being saved. You are reading perfect words about salvation. You know what Jesus says in John chapter 3? You know what he says in verse 16, don't you? I mean, I could call for a show of hands, and a bunch of people could just, you know what John 3.16 says. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, have eternal life, praise God. How often have you heard messages where the preacher like kicks it to verse 17? How often does that actually happen for you? It it doesn't happen very often because John 3.16 is really nice. It really feels really good. But in John chapter 3 verse 17, Jesus says these words. I did not come to condemn the world. We're like, yeah, yes. Jesus loves, love wins. He didn't come to send anyone. And we start to cherry pick other things throughout scripture. He's not wanting anyone to die. He wants everyone to be saved. Jesus loves everyone. He said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. You know what he says after that? Show me your hand if you know what Jesus says. Right after he says, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save it. Raise your hand if you know the next phrase. Oh, everybody look around. I want, you, I want every person to look around the room right now. Hardly anyone. And we wonder why Christians are such a wreck. We, you know what we learned last week at the men's retreat? Oh, okay, I'm be careful of the soapbox. Be careful of this. You know what we learned last week at the men's retreat? Men, statistics. Remember them? Show me your hand if you're at the retreat and you remember the statistics we learned last week. of pastors in America surveyed, which the sampling group is typically 1,000 to 2,000 people. I didn't look it up. I can. I have the information if you want to see it. 41% have a biblical worldview. You know what that means? They're teaching you man's view of the world, not God's. It gets worse. 28% of associate pastors have a biblical worldview. It gets worse. It was like 11 or 12% of youth group leaders and Sunday school teachers and children's workers who have a biblical worldview. You know what that means? That out there in the wide world, well over 50% of those teaching people in the church don't use the Bible. And I just quizzed you all on one of the greatest phrases that Jesus ever uttered, and none of you knew it. Now, don't be ashamed of that. Don't feel beat up by me, your pastor. I love you. Read your Bibles. Know your Bible. Jesus says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. He who believes in the Son of God is not condemned. That's what follows. Then you know what follows? He who does not believe is already condemned. Already. Your natural 
born position before God is condemned, a sinner, a hard-hearted, resistant to God's will, not willing to see the good, do the good, able to do the good. You are born in utter depravity and sin by nature, all of us, every single one of us. And so what happens? All hearts are hard and condemned. The Bible says the wages of sin is death because all have sinned. Romans 6.23, Romans 3.23. And all hearts remain hard. And all hearts remain condemned. Do you see how what the Bible teaches and what our views want to make up differ? We don't want anyone to be condemned. But we've lost sight of the biblical truth that we are already all condemned. That's how humanity has started life as soon as they began descending from Adam and Eve who broke God's commands. The good news is that God, according to his mercy, softens hearts. The good news is that God, according to his grace, saves. The good news is that according to God's spirit, he regenerates. The good news is that through faith in Jesus Christ, our hard heart, literally, Jeremiah 31, and in the Old Testament with the Israelites, our old heart, God says, is removed. I will remove the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. That's God's work. That's what God does. God takes us from being calloused, hard-hearted, condemned sinners before him, and according to his mercy, by his grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, what does Colossians say? Transfers us. Do you understand? You're never going to find in all of Scripture anything regarding salvation where you did anything. It's all of God. Every ounce of the salvation work that God does is all of God in our lives. Pharaoh is persisting in his disobedient unbelief, and he stands at this moment as God hardens his heart, and as Moses says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? He is standing condemned before God, hard-hearted, not wanting to obey. He told us that back in Exodus chapter 5. I don't know him. I'm not listening. I will not obey. He made his position very clear. Man, that's the right question. I wonder how many different questions. I wanted to take a survey, but I'm not very good at knowing how to do those things. I wondered how many lead-in questions people have for the unsaved in your life. Let's ask it that way. How many different questions do people have when they engage the lost in their life with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And you know what I bet one question we don't have? I know that it's not in my repertoire. Uh, it will be now after studying this out. You know what we don't have is Moses' question to Pharaoh right here. Moses asks perhaps the wisest question that we could ask of someone who is unsaved. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before the Lord. Because, because that's the reality of the lost, exalted against God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, uh, the weapons we wage war with are not of this world, they're not of the flesh. We wage uh, war with weapons that are powerful for the demolition of strongholds. We take every, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We destroy every argument, every lofty opinion that raises itself up against God. I've said this before, you understand that our natural state in humanity separated from God, hardened in, in our sin and condemned, our natural state that we are the lofty opinion cast up against God. And God hardens. God gives mercy. As God gives mercy, we are softened and we respond to God's goodness 
How long will you refuse to humble yourself against the Lord? Let my people go, he says to him. Pharaoh's persisting in his disobedient unbelief. He stands condemned, and if he refuses again, catch that, I literally put in my margin, mercy moment. Because all we see is God hardening and Pharaoh disobeying. We're like, how does this work out? But do you pay attention to? For if you refuse, there's mercy. You can just bracket it right there. Mercy, mercy moment. But why won't he? Because Pharaoh is the lofty opinion, cast up, exalting himself against the Lord God. Now Pharaoh persisting, here come the locusts. And this plague comes from an east wind that drives all day and all night. And in the morning there are locusts. Did you catch it? They're just everywhere. Pharaoh is persisting in his unbelief. But look it, there's a change in the people around him, isn't there? Did you notice the change? Verse 7. Then he turned and went out. Notice, Moses goes into Pharaoh. And I love the words that Moses gives us. A very good description of how this encounter went. Moses goes in, states his case, and he goes out. Not cast out. Not thrown out, not get out, but Pharaoh, here, I'm done, and he leaves. When he leaves, verse 7, Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? I wrote down, and then I crossed it out because I knew that my mind would intuitively go to this point. Here, Pharaoh's servants are asking, how long will this man be a snare to us? Do you remember the condition of the Israelite people at the start of Exodus? We've been slaves! How long? And now we're watching, as we move through Scripture, we're watching those tables turn. Now, all of a sudden, the Israelites are standing by because why? Because their water didn't turn to blood. Because the flies weren't in their land. Because the gnats didn't bother them. Because their cows weren't struck down by hail. Because they didn't get sores on their body. Because in this plague, we don't think the locusts came and ate anything of them. It destroyed everything of the Egyptians. They're standing there and they're watching. Wait a second. This is what God said to Moses. God is delivering us, and there's a separation now, and they're watching it all happen as Egypt is destroyed, and now people around Pharaoh are getting a clue how long these tables being turned. All of a sudden, we're going to just stand silently. Oh, what does God say to them when they come to the sea? Stand and see the deliverance of the Lord. Oh, I love those words. All of a sudden, how long? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand yet that Egypt is ruined? Like, I wanted to give you a great worldly illustration. We should always be careful of using worldly illustrations. And you'll notice, I don't do that very often. And some of you might be like, Pastor, you don't use illustrations. No, that's because I believe that God's word has plenty enough strength to stand on its own. It doesn't need help from the world. But as I read the Egyptians' counsel to Pharaoh, do you not yet understand the only place my mind could go, for those who are history people in the room, was to Hitler in that bunker in 1945, refusing to believe that it was over. And if you go, you can read plenty of accounts of people who were close and near. He lost his mind, refusing to believe that it was over. It was just kind of, it was kind of that, this helps me see kind of where Pharaoh's at. He's like, what is he sitting, does he have a throne? What's he sitting on? There's locusts coming now. Like, oh my gosh, do you not understand? How many more things have to happen to us? It's over. Let the men go that they may serve. Did you notice that? Let the men go. Let the men go. What did God say? Who is supposed to go? I want to hear your answer. Who is supposed to go out of Egypt? My people. 
my people, not let my men go, not let my women go, not let my women and my young ones go, my people, collectively, I led them there, you're going to let them go, and I'm going to take them out, let my people go. Pharaoh begins this negotiating a little bit with a non-deal-making God. We've been here before. Exodus 9.25, go but stay in the land. Remember, you can go, but don't, don't leave the land. Stay in the land. Then remember, after that it was, go but don't go very far. Right? Now it's, go the men of you. And then Pharaoh wisely, let the men go. Man, I bet Pharaoh wish he hadn't asked this question, because I just feel like he gets just enraged here in the hardness of his heart. Go serve the Lord your God, but which ones? Moses, who are you taking? I'm telling you to go. Who's going with you? And Moses is like, oh man, I'm glad you asked because it's going to be every man, woman, child. It's going to be everyone from the young to the old. It's going to be every one of the flocks and every one of the herds. Pharaoh, we're going to leave Goshen as if we'd never been there. That was enough for Pharaoh and his hardness of heart. No, you're not. No, the men of you. Let the men of you go. I love what... Maybe we don't pay very close attention to the fact. Look at verse 11, the very start of it. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out, driven out. Last time they went out, this time they're driven out. In just a minute, they're going to be hastily called back in. In that moment, verse 11, right between verse 11 and verse 12, Pharaoh has just let Israel's men leave Egypt to go into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord their God and serve him go. You'll notice there's no trickery that happens right here. It's just go. Get out. He hardens his heart later on. Go. At that moment, Moses and all the men could leave. But that would not be obedience to what God has said. The people will go. Moses is right to say, no, no, no. All of us go or none of us go. We should hear that. Moses keeps them all there. They're still in Egypt could have walked away, but they did not because that would not have been obedient. Pharaoh brings Moses back in, tries to make a deal. Who will go? The men will go. No, the, everyone will go. No, the men only will go. Now get out. They drive him out of the presence. Notice Pharaoh's threat. Did you see it? The Lord be with you, verse 10. The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Now when we read that, in our minds, at least in my mind, because I'm not that brilliant, I read that and I'm like, oh, he will be. Oh, the Lord will be with them when they go. But do you know what Pharaoh is saying to them? The Lord be against you. The Hebrew there word for the Lord be with you, the Lord be with, the Hebrew word there means against. You know what Pharaoh is saying? If I let all of you go, everything that has happened to me, the Lord do to you. Now, that's not how it's going to play out. But in that moment, that's precisely, look, you have some evil scheme in mind, some evil purpose. Pharaoh has known from the beginning, you're not leaving you're not taking away my free labor. My, hire, my people have been living a good life since we've enslaved you Israelites here. Pharaoh drives them out. Get out. No deal, Pharaoh. And what happens? And the plague comes. Stretch out your hand. The wind blows all night. They wake up and the locusts are there. And did you pay attention? Remember back in Exodus 9, I mentioned last week how Moses gives us the detail. Look back, 9, 31 and 32. Verse 30, Moses says, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. Verse 31 and 32, Moses writes for us, 
The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, means it was, it was growing and developing. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they were late in coming up. So remember we talked last week about Pharaoh's wicked, calculating heart? Well, we lost those crops, but there's a future crop coming and we'll be fine. And all of a sudden, here come the locusts. And did you pay attention in verse 5? They shall eat all that the hail left. In verse 12, that they may eat all that the hail is left. In verse 15, and they ate all that the hail had left. So now, all of a sudden, God took Pharaoh's calculating heart about, we'll be okay, we've got another crop coming. And he's rushed hastily. Look at verse, what is it, 11 or uh, 16. Pharaoh hastily calls Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned. Why? Because all of a sudden, his backup plan just got devoured by locusts. And now there's nothing good in the land. The fish died in the river. Heaps of frogs they're dealing with. The flies, the gnats, the sores. There's dead livestock. There's all of a sudden the hail falls and they're losing trees and they're losing plants. And, but there's some that are left. We'll still be okay. And now God sends a locust and they devour every green plant and every fruit of the tree. And they leave nothing. They're on the face of the earth devouring Egypt. We should pay attention to how complete and thorough God's judgment is upon sin. The locusts come and they're devouring every last bit that is good. All that the hail had left, verse 15 says, not a green thing remained through all the land of Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron are hastily called back in. And here comes the confession, right? How many times have you, how many times someone that you've known, something goes wrong and I'm so sorry. He just did it last week with the hail. I've sinned, God is right, and I am wrong. Plead for the thunder to stop because there's been enough of that. And they do, and it does. And then Pharaoh goes back to hardening his heart and not obeying God. And then here again, the locusts come, and now the backup plan is devoured, and all the fruit is devoured, and his counselors are even saying, we're ruined. We are ruined. I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Look at what he says. Here we go again with this phony confession from this hard-hearted king. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, look, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Oh, but it's not only this once, Pharaoh. You've asked for Moses to plead with God for you so many times now. We're in plague number eight. You've been here before asking for help. He went out and pled with the Lord, and the strong east wind turned into a strong west wind, drives the locusts out. Look what it says, 19, not a single locust was left in all the country Verse 20, oh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people go. Remember what we said a couple weeks ago? Why is God doing that? He's giving Pharaoh over. We don't like to think about that. Pharaoh, you're persisting against me. Now, you're not able to do anything else. Romans chapter 1. If you want to fight God on it, go ahead. But Romans chapter 1 talks all about it. Since they knew God, but refused to acknowledge him as God, since they did not worship him or give him honor, he gave them over. Now, in this moment, for Pharaoh, unable. There's good news for Pharaoh. He's still going to get a couple more ifs. The mercy moments exist still for him. God is not done being merciful. Makes me wonder. You know, we look at people and we're like, oh my gosh, how much mercy is God showing to people around you? To you. How much mercy is God showing to me? And how often am I hard-hearted against the mercy of God? How, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before the Lord? Now, 
the point of the sermon. Did you catch 20 verses? For those that have been with the whole thing, I, I just pop quiz. Did you catch what separates this plague from all of the others? Because one of these plagues to this point is not like the others. And it's this one. You know what separates it? There's a line in here that separates this plague from all the other plagues. Let me help you. That I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. The locusts devour the land of Egypt. And what separates this plague from the others as we're walking through them is God telling Moses, I am setting the stage for you to be able to talk about me forever. For generations, you will be able to talk about me. We've been reading Psalm 78. We just finished it this morning. It was the mid-worship scripture reading this morning. 72 verses that are essentially a, a commentary of Israel in Egypt to, through their history to the time of David. 78, or 72 verses in Psalm chapter 78. Anybody have an idea? Just take a wild guess at the approximate time frame that Psalm 78 would have been written. Anybody with a wild guess want to take a stab at it? Okay, I'll help you. Psalm 78 is written by a man named Asaph. And Asaph was 14 generations descended from Levi. He is a son of Levi's son, Gershom, or Gershon, whichever one you want to go with, because both names are synonymous. 14 generations. Do you know when he wrote Psalm 78? He wrote it in the time of David, which is 500 years after the Exodus. Pastor, what's the point? What are you trying to say? How often do you talk about the wondrous works of God? How often do you pass down what God has done? How often do you even, how often do you even think about what God has done? Let alone how often do you actually put words to what God has done? Psalm 150, 145 verse 4 says this. It's a song I learned as a child, actually. I'll spare you from seeing it this morning. It says this, One generation shall commend you one to another and declare your mighty acts. One generation shall commend you, shall praise you to another and commend your mighty acts. Psalm 111 verse 2 says, The works of the Lord are great and they are studied by those who delight in them. In the church age, to us, Paul says older men are to teach younger men and older women are to teach younger women. But what am I supposed to teach? And what am I supposed to talk about? What am I supposed to say? You know what you say? As the people of God being delivered, being redeemed, and with, we pray one day with the spirit of Christ now, but one day literally physically with him, God dwelling with us, do you know what you're supposed to declare to the people around you? The wondrous and glorious works of God. If you're sitting here today and you have repented of sin and you are living a life of faith toward God, faith in Christ and repentance toward God, God has worked in your life and God has given you something to talk about. And even if you can't talk about your own personal testimony with someone, do you know what you can go to? A long time ago, in a land far away, among my people, 
they were enslaved and in bondage. And the Lord, my God, came down to deliver them with great acts of judgment on their enemies. How often have you ever thought of telling the story of Moses in Egypt as part of your family history exclaiming the wondrous works of God to people around you? let alone what God has done in your own family. I look around the room, and I'm so blessed to know so many testimonies, but most of you shouldn't even be here right now. God has spared your life. God has redeemed you from the cesspool of sin, barren with no children, and now there are kids clamoring around you. A testimony to the nations. And all the bad that's happening in the world, all we can focus on is, oh, when, Lord, when, Lord, when, Lord, when we should say, let me tell you about the goodness of God. Let me tell you about his wondrous works, about his glorious deeds. Look what he says, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians. And what signs I don't, what do we talk about with God? Talk about not provoking God to anger. Hey, dads, what does God say to you? Fathers, don't provoke your kids to anger. You know why? Because God is a father who wants to not be provoked to anger by his children. And when his children provoke him to anger, God executes judgment. Talk about it. Talk about the wondrous, glorious works of God. There's a straight line connection between the work of God in your life, in your home, in your family, in our church, in our town, in ancient Egypt with the people of Israel. There's a straight line connection between the work of God and the word of the Christian. So next time you're clamoring, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, just talk about the wondrous works of God. Talk about a God who exercised judgment to make himself seem more merciful to his people. He's extended mercy. God has had mercy on me. What makes you better than me? Nothing. Nothing makes me better than you. But God has extended mercy to you. You know what's happening when you share God extending mercy to you, to someone else? You know what's happening? Mercy moment. When you are speaking words of God's mercy to a person, God is extending mercy to them. It doesn't happen by chance. A warning is being declared to hearts that stand condemned. As we explore the mighty acts of God in Egypt... May our mouths be filled with the declaration of his glorious, wondrous works. It's a proclamation of the gospel. When you proclaim the work of God, you're proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, help us, God, to talk about your wondrous works. Father, I pray, thank you for stirring in my heart that I must talk more about your wondrous works. But Father, stir in us collectively and individually as your people here gathered. Father, to speak of your works. May we be one generation that declares your works to another. May our old men teach our young men. May our old women teach young women. May we be a church that passes down wisdom of knowing you. May we not boast in the flesh. May we not boast in gain. May we boast in knowing you. You are God, our Lord. Father, great are you. You have done great things. You are good. We praise you, Father, for displaying your mercy. Father, I pray today has been a moment of your mercy displayed to someone whom you are saving. 
Father, that our singing, our reading, our praying, the preaching, I pray, Father, that it has been used by you to show mercy to a sinner. Father, may you be glorified among us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.